Hi everyone and welcome to SAMA episode 84. This week we are delighted to have Dr. Martin Hart to talk about neuroplasticity and healing and the neurology of emotions. Dr. Hart is a certified corrective exercise specialist through the National Academy of Sports Medicine and is certified in functional endocrinology. His passion is to use his background and continued learning to help patients weave a story of healing and transformation. So thank you for coming on to our show. It's wonderful to have you with us, Dr. Martin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, now, we're going to talk about um, neuroplasticity and neurology of emotions. Should we go straight into it with neuroplasticity? <laughs> I knew I was going to do that one time. <laughs> I just didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, can you explain what is neuroplasticity? Yeah, so uh, we can simply break the word down. Neuro being our nervous system, uh, our brain, our central nervous system, spinal cord, and the periphery, and plastic meaning moldable or shapeable or changeable. And so when we put the two words together, it's our central nervous system and our brain's way of changing, adapting, and molding to stressors and stimuli. Right. Um, so if you've got some sort of stress, your body can change and accommodate or work around the stress. Correct. Uh, a good stress and bad stress, you know, like you stress or distress. And so uh, very simply, that's what working out is. You know, it's an adaptation to a stressor. You get stronger, you get more fit. Um, the same way with the brain. All right. So that I didn't really realize there was a, a good stress. I thought all stress was bad. So, <laughs> so, so uh, you really break the stress down into two words. You break it down into distress, which would be uh, a bad stressor. And then you have you stress, which is stress uh, at the time might not feel great, but it, it produces a positive outcome. Right, right. And just a reminder to all our viewers, uh, type your questions either in the chat Q&A or if you're on Facebook, just chat on, just type a message on the bottom of the video and uh, Dr. Martin Hart will answer online. Now there's been a question that's been put, um, was actually before we started, so I better put it through. Now it's from, from uh, Thomas Mihalik. He's asking, can you heal the, uh, I believe it's a limbic system or calm the fight or flight loop? And uh, what Thomas is saying, he's um, using daily practices to calm the state that he's got himself in. Um, yeah. He says it uh, can cause gas, uh, gastroparesis and sound, light, and smell sensitivity. And is there any way that he can overcome that um, condition? Yeah, so it sounds like what he's talking about is uh, when the limbic system gets stuck in um, overstimulation. So the limbic system, one way to describe the limbic system, uh, it's in the kind of the middle of our brain. Yes. Um, uh, using the three-part uh, idea of the brain, we have the frontal cortex, which yes. is kind of the um, uh, uh, human brain, the neocortex. And then we get to the mammalian brain or the dog brain, as some people call it. And that's the limbic system. And that's really where a lot of our memory is stored. Uh, our emotions come from, and et cetera. And so it uh, responds to stressors uh, via the fight or flight mechanism. Trying to protect us is what the limbic system is doing. So normally, uh, so, good, wouldn't it? A good, it would normally be a good thing over a short Correct. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's kind of where the idea of the book, uh, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, come from. Uh, <laughs> because uh, when a zebra gets attacked, we want it, it wants to be stressed. It needs that fight or flight mechanism to flee. But once it's okay, it's done. It calms back down. The problem in uh, modern society is that stressors very rarely are uh, immediate threats. You know, very rarely are they an actual car accident. It's yes. small ones repeated over time. 
-hmm. And so we get caught in that limbic loop. Yes. Uh, and so uh, one aspect when we get caught in that limbic loop, the first thing we want to do is we want to do cellular healing, which we'll talk about later. Okay. Um, and then we can use what he's speaking of, those daily practices to um, down-regulate that limbic brain and yes. up-regulate other parts of the brain to shut it down. Yes, yes. Have you, um, he, he's added a PS. Um, he's using the dynamic neuro-retraining system. Um, yes. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Yeah, uh, DNRS or uh, Annie Hopper's work, it's a fantastic system. Uh, yeah. She has an immersion program. And um, what I like to say is I wouldn't be where I'm at without standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes. And in the neuroplasticity world, Annie Hopper and the DNRS system is one of those giants. Uh, and so her system is fantastic for daily use. I highly recommend it. Good, good. Okay, so the brain can restore itself or, or mold itself to different, in different ways. How? How can it do Yes, that? that's a great question. How does it adapt? So um, basically one aspect is anything that we constantly supply to the brain, it is going to try to adapt to. So one of the main concepts, the main principles of neuroplasticity, adaption, and change is called the Hebbian theory. Uh, and that is simply neurons that fire together, yes. wire together. Yes. Uh, so uh, whatever fires, whatever neurons fire when you have a stimulus, a stressor, so yes. to stick with Thomas's example, uh, like chemicals, perfumes, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, if you have a stressful event because you're sensitive to perfume, the more perfumes you get, the more often those wire together. So the brain will wire that response with that perfume, wire and fire together. Uh, and the exact opposite principle happens too. If you don't use it, if they don't fire together, you lose those connections, which is one way we can use that concept to uh, downregulate issues. So uh, fire together, wire together. If you don't use it, you lose it. And the brain will constantly seek a state of homeostasis, whether it's a good state or a poor state. So it'll just, it'll try to find an equilibrium, no matter if it's stuck in fight or flight or nice and relaxed or an even balance. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of the principles of neuroplasticity. Um, would you like me to go into a little bit the way uh, the limbic system wires in uh, fight or flight states? I'd love to. Now, what, just what you're talking about, we, we will, but um, this is how people can associate smells with memories? Yes, exactly. Uh, the olfactory nerve uh, gets right up near the limbic system of the brain, near the amygdala, so it wires right in there. Uh, and so smell, then, when we smell something, it'll stimulate that olfactory nerve, and it uh, strongly fires the amygdala, which then stores the memory in the hippocampus. So mm -hmm. smell is a fantastic way to work with memory, but it's also why cookies will often remind us of fond memories of grandma or yeah. something like that. Yes, precisely. Wow. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. With it. You're going to uh, go into more detail. On the, okay. No, uh, the only thing to add there is it's a smell um, in a positive sense. It's a fantastic way to influence the brain, uh, especially um, from a studying standpoint. So for instance, when you're studying, uh, let's say a history lesson, uh, you can always smell like maybe peppermint. Yes. Uh, and then when you go to take your history test, you whip a little peppermint. <laughs> your brain activates those same pathways. So, it's cramming, cramming for the exam. <laughs> That's, that's right. Everybody wants to know why you're huffing the essential oils. Yeah, yeah and they want you to prove it's essential oil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Gosh, because um, the furthest memories I have are associated with taste and smell. Why, why would they be the, the longest, you know, the, the oldest memories that I have? Is that because 
when my brain was still sort of forming, is that the, is that the, the front of the um, brain at the cortex? Yeah, so uh, as you're forming, um, the brain kind of forms in general. Now, this is not a, a, a strong and true idea, but it generally forms from the back up when you're a child, you know, in the womb and et cetera and little. Uh, and so as you're developing those smells, those smells are forming what we call implicit memories that we don't necessarily remember. Uh, and then as you start to gain the front of your brain, you start to gain explicit memories or memories that are visual and et cetera, they start to tag them all together. And so they create the strongest interaction, the most neural connections. Yes. Does this plasticity, <laughs> almost came out wrong, does that slow down as you age? Um, it does a little bit. You're most neuroplastic as a child, especially up until you're about seven. Uh, you've got a fantastic learning window in there, but there's plenty you can do to maintain your neuroplasticity as you age, and they find it never stops. So you always are able, you know, it's never too late to start working with neuroplasticity. Right. Um, well, what can people do that are watching us now? What, what tips can you give them to improve their plasticity? Yeah, for sure. So um, some generalized things to improve your neuroplasticity. Number one is uh, we want to keep our diet as clean as possible. Uh, just get the junk out. Um, and then we just want to feed the brain. And we'll, maybe we'll go over that a little more in detail. But um, omega-3s are really important for the brain. Yes. Uh, amino acid building blocks, vitamin E, et cetera, that our brain needs. So we want to make sure it's got what it, it, the building blocks it needs. And we want to keep the junk out. Right. Uh, and then just to keep the idea together of if you don't use it, you lose it. So keep using your brain. You know, one aspect they found, especially of, uh, in the U.S., uh, government workers who can retire a little bit earlier than the average person, well, they quit working and they sit down in front of the TV. And so they quit using their brain and very quickly they get Alzheimer's because they, you know, they get the dementia because their brain quits firing. They don't have to use it anymore. They're stuck in the TV when they're retired. Right. Uh, so you want to find ways to use it and use it in ways that uh, you don't have to every day. So every once in a while, you want to vary your route that you take to work. Do so something what, different. So that study proved that if you work for the government, you get Alzheimer's. Or you get <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they maybe didn't say that because I'm pretty sure it was funded by the U.S. government, but uh, <laughs> it was the same idea there. Um, yeah. Does it, is, um, how long does it take after an injury for your brain to find alternative pathways? and um, have some sort of recovery and closes the old pathways perhaps. Is it a very yeah. slow process? That's a great question. Uh, so there's a, a, a good study they did on concussion injuries and concussions are becoming a very uh, big source of research now, especially with youth athletics. And so what they found with concussions is it takes about 30 days to have no concussion symptoms. But the scary part is it takes another 30 days after that before the brain's actually healed. Right. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's an important part I really like to bring up uh, in general because we have varying degrees of um, neuroplastic healing that occurs. And so if we don't take those into effect, we think we're better and we might give up on a neuroplastic program or in youth sports, we might send a child back into play too early. And that's how they get multiple concussions and brain injuries. Okay, okay. So I need that. Yeah. Yes. So if it's okay, I'd love to, to dive into a little bit of those. Yes. Uh, healing spectrum so I can I can give you a little timeline okay okay yeah so uh, there's the first uh, idea there is what they call functional neuroplasticity 
Uh, it happens at an activation or deactivation setup of different neurons and synapses, and it can be instant. It can happen in the moment you apply a stimulus or up to a few minutes. Okay. Um, and that's how sometimes people feel better instantly, is that functional neuroplasticity or that synaptic activation. Uh, the next phase of activation can happen between hours uh, and weeks, and that's where the synapses themselves change. They're changing how much neurotransmitters they're outputting, uh, the number of receptors they have, um, but the synapses themselves are changing. Yes. Uh, and that's also part of the way they theorize. Now, I'm not a huge fan of antidepressants, but that's part of the reason they theorize that antidepressants take weeks uh, to take effect is because the synapses have to adjust, and it takes uh, weeks to do that. Okay. Uh, and the next phase is weeks to months, and this is where the synapses are changing, but also the neurons themselves are changing and rewiring and laying down new tracks. Uh, and so... That's an applied stimulus over time. Uh, it's starting to change the way those neurons are wired, the axons and the dendrites are wired. Uh, the last phase takes from months up to about two years. And that's when the whole pathway is concrete. Uh, all the neurons are fully changed and laid down. Uh, it's like having a fully functioning automatic railway that's ready to go on its own now. Uh, and so you really want to stick with something uh, for at least 90 days to get that full uh, neuronal change. And then if you want it to be around, you want to practice it. It doesn't have to be every day anymore, but consistently for years. Okay, okay. At which time it would be automatic part of your hard wiring. So exactly. Yeah. Um, I'll share a story that Carmela sent to me um, through the uh, online chat. Um, um, Carmela, I'll, do, I'll read it verbatim. Um, Hi, Martin. My darling dad had over 13 strokes and he eventually only lost a small amount of his speech. Uh, the neurologist said that he was in the 3% of worldwide native people whose brain reconnects, um, mostly in the cerebrum, uh, cerebellum, uh, almost one hour after each stroke. He never lost any movement. And the doctors were fascinated. Um, Dad lived a long life even after the strokes and walked every day as well um, as exercise. Uh, do, have you found this in some people that have got an innate ability to recover very quickly from accidents or injury of some form? Yes. So folks who, um, number one, if they kind of have the uh, factors of neuroplasticity in place already, lifestyle factors, they, like she said, he walked a lot, maybe he walks now, but maybe he walked, he exercised beforehand. So plenty of uh, what they call proprioceptive or movement feedback to the brain was happening. Yes. Uh, and that's a really key factor. That increases what's called brain-derived neurotropic factor. Now, I, I told you earlier I wouldn't give you any quizzes. So uh, that big word, BDNF, basically is like fertilizer for the brain. Yes. And so it's constantly secreting that fertilizer if you're exercising. And mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, if your brain has the right nutrients, um, and then maybe you have a, a, a positive attitude, which creates the right environment, um, and you possibly have the great genetics, you know, appropriate repair genetics, appropriate neurotransmitter genetics, yes. um, varying ones for the brain that improve neuroplasticity, then you end up with a stroke, uh, and you do very well. And you're probably not an individual who is going to wallow in it either. You, okay. you know, typically those ones are ones who are going to be proactive no matter what happens. Yes, yes. So attitude does play a large part. It's quite intriguing, very intriguing. Yes, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge part of it, uh, and not just from like a Pollyanni or um, a positive mental attitude standpoint. Uh, 
Um, we do want to be positive, but it's not just the thoughts. It's what the thoughts trigger, the brain waves they trigger, uh, the emotional states they trigger, the neurotransmitters they trigger. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, Charlotte Garland has um, asked a question. Uh, sure. Christian's still growing as I read it, but I'll, um, I'll, I won't mention Charlotte who it is, but Charlotte knows someone who had a traumatic brain injury two years ago uh, in March. Um, he has disequilibrium, and the doctors speculate that his uh, vestibular is affected. Now, the mm -hmm. question is, can neuroplasticity help in this type of situation? Looking up, looking down, walking up or down, um, make him feel worse. Um, his head starts to wobble. So is there other things that you can, that this person can do to improve um, their recovery speed? And yes. Your... So um, with those individuals, it, it, they probably would require uh, more intense activity, more intense therapy to get it yeah. through. But the brain can wire around it and yes. overcompensate for that vestibular issue uh, that's occurring. It's creating the disequilibrium. Uh, yeah. And there's uh, quite a few eye exercises and there's some neck and head exercises that can be done uh, to basically rewire around those pathways um, yes. and two aspects one it creates a new centering process of the brain instead of using the vestibular system to get its uh, balance its equilibrium it maybe uses the eyes and proprioceptive proprioception instead uh, to do that and on top of that too there's varying exercises uh, one being for instance um, if the room spins let's say from right to left for you, yes. then it's, whenever that occurs, you would immediately look down to the right and you basically shut down that neural pathway until it goes away. Okay. And you could constantly shut that down yes. and then uh, depending on, you have to test the different eye pathways and the neck movements and yes. you can do that with some functional neurological work and give them exercises to strengthen the opposite. Okay. Uh, yes. So okay. yeah, it can be, it can be worked um, and worked out. And, who knows if it could get to no disequilibrium, you know, zero symptoms, or just quite a bit improvement, but it can be worked around. Right. It's like his brain is always looking for uh, the state of balance. As um, um, Charlotte says, it's not our vertigo, but um, the, what you're saying makes sense. If things are swinging around, how do you know what phrase up and down? So exactly. Yes. An issue. Like, you know, if you, if you close your eyes, you turn around, like everyone's done like a child. And then you um, try and stand up. Well, um, it's difficult. And this person must be having that type of sensation. It must be very hard. Yes. So um, the um, how does the lack of adaptive capacity lead to the symptoms? Uh, lead to different symptoms. Like if someone hasn't gotten a, a much of a capacity to adapt to different um, injuries. Um, well, I read one, one article where um, they amputated the finger of a monkey and they found that the, um, the nerves, either for, which controlled either side of the digit, they got amputated, then took over the function of the, of the stub of the third of the amputated uh, finger. Is this pretty much how um, this adaptability works? In a part right. Of, um, um, yeah, so the brain will always try to achieve that state of homeostasis. It's always looking to adapt uh, to create the most balance. Um, but it's only going to adapt to the input we give it. So a monkey maybe has less stressors in life than we do, other than having his finger chopped off. Um, I can't, did you say monkey or chimpanzee? 
uh, I'd hate to discriminate against the different apes, but um, so it, uh, but it's looking for that equilibrium. And so that its brain will try to adapt that to create the movement it needs to be create functionality. Yes. Uh, so for instance, for us, one way is that the lack of adaptability creates symptoms that uh, we can look back to Hans Saley, Hans Saley, who uh, developed what's called a general adaptation syndrome. And he talked about the way our system adapts to stressors. And he had three phases that he marked. And the first one was uh, alarm, the alarm phase. And that is the fight or flight response. A stressor occurs and we adapt. Uh, you know, a speeding car is coming to us. Our heart rate starts pounding, our blood pressure goes up, and it's giving us the ability to quickly make decisions about what to do. You know, that's the alarm. Now, uh, if the stressor in our life, let's say it's not a car accident, but it's uh, a, a stressful work situation. We're constantly in this very stressful work situation. If that stressor never goes away, our body will get into phase two, which is in resistance. It's trying to adapt, but it realizes that we have to live everyday life Yes. So it's going to keep some resources up here to deal with the stressor, and it's going to try to relax the rest of the system as best as it can. Yes. But because the stressor is still here, that limbic system is now on high alert. It's now looking out for more stressors. Now, if this stressor still never goes away, and we, we never induce recovery phases, then we're going to start to run out of nutrients. We're going to start to deplete resources. Uh, our systems are going to start to get taxed, and we're going to hit that last phase, which is exhaustion. Right. We've depleted our resources. Our body can't adapt anymore. Uh, that's where we get. Uh, usually, symptoms start um, in the second phase, that resistance phase, uh, but they really get prevalent. Like we can no longer ignore them in the exhaustion phase, um, yes. and that's when we start getting name diseases. We start getting cell death, and eventually, people die from that. Gosh. Gosh. Um, if people take um, drugs to mask symptoms, I suppose it just prolongs and um, you know, you can't, you can't avoid the inevitable. And so if correct. you correct the cause, then it's just going to go deeper and deeper, I guess. And so, yeah, and it, exactly. And so the other aspect of that is, you know, the symptom you're masking is your body's response to the stressor. Yes. So all you did was you kicked out your body's adaptation. You took your body's ability to adapt away and you said, you know, it's almost like in the animal studies where those animals learned hopelessness or helplessness yes. because they, had, they couldn't do anything about it. The body learns that. It learns yeah. that helplessness because you took it away its body, its, its need to adapt. So if you have high blood pressure and you take a blood pressure medicine, you know, the body says, listen, I have high blood pressure for a reason. And all you did was kick out my ability to adapt. But you yes. didn't fix the stressor. No, I can, I can tell at this stage you're quite a fan of um, drugs that treat symptoms. <laughs> I'm very perceptive that way. And viruses and bacteria are also big stresses for your body. And you may not be aware necessarily that it's stress. It's not like an external stress. It's an internal stress. And yes. So um, I always like to make sure I, I uh, explain it to my patients. So when I tell them we have this stressor, I'm not just telling them, hey, you're kind of stressed out. Why don't you go take a nap? You know, stressors can be infections, viruses, bacteria. You know, one we see very often um, in our center is Lyme disease. Uh, parasites, toxins can be a stressor, yes. uh, traumatic events, whether they're physical trauma like a stroke or a head injury or their psychological trauma or a combination of both that people go through. Um, and long-term deficiencies will eventually pose traumas as well that create stressors. Right, right. Um, a person's asked, 
Um, if a child develops PANS or PANDAS, autoimmune encephalitis, uh, prior to um, adolescent pruning, um, can they be permanently wired for anxiety? Um, I never like to use the word permanently. I'm not a big fan of absolutes. Yes, um, I like but that. But anxiety does become, uh, instead of a state that's only provoked by external circumstances, it becomes a natural trait of theirs. Now, uh, that can be pruned eventually. That can be wired around. Um, yes. Now, and I'm not saying they won't have to work harder than the average person with anxiety because yes. theirs was developed and um, from both an outside and an internal perspective at the at the right, you know, just the crux of the right age when all that pruning happened. Right. But it can still happen. Right. They can still find that improvement. Uh, let's see. Uh, more questions have come through. Um, okay. Well, Charlotte's still talking about the uh, man, the person, the person who's got the uh, the dizziness, if you like. Uh, what kind of therapist would you recommend um, they go to? Sure, and, I, and I, I did notice that point there. There is a difference between the disequilibrium and the vertigo. I was just using an example there, but I, I do hear the difference. Okay. But the typical, the typical that I would like people to see, uh, functional neurologist. There's a, there's a couple of certifications through functional neurology, um, okay. and a lot of those might be naturopaths, um, some medical doctors, uh, chiropractors often have that designation, and they'll be able to put you through some of those functional neurological tests and et cetera. Um, I go through some of those in my videos on the Hansa Center's YouTube page. Um, I go through some of those functional neuro tests you can see, but a functional neurologist is somebody along those lines I would, I would recommend. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, Carmela Walker's asking, uh, would working with a pulsed EMF mat help balance the brain? Pulsed EMF, is that what you said? That's right. Yes. Yeah, I really like pulsed EMF, um, and that is a way to use uh, electromagnetics in a positive way. So there's a lot of different things you can do with pulsed EMF. Uh, it's, there's a wide variety. It's basically a way to carry certain frequencies. Uh, so you can use it to carry different brain, positive brainwave frequencies into the brain. Uh, you can view um, anti-inflammatory frequencies in there. Uh, at, my, at my center, we use it for various reasons. We improve blood flow to the brain with PEMF yes. uh, to varying degrees. Um, we will also use it as more of a lymphatic stimulating device. We have one that pulses and helps to pump lymphatics. So any of those can be used as a fantastic way to heal the brain. Right. What about inclined bed therapy? If you just um, have your feet above your head. You yes. It's great uh, for, for sure. PEMF as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, that one's a little more comical than PEMF, but it does work because uh, it does induce blood flow if you can stand it uh, it is helpful okay now when you when you say if you can stand it you're talking about the a food sort of coming back up your you know up your esophagus yeah that yeah exactly and some people like for instance myself uh if i have to start that at much shorter periods because of the way it affects uh how much blood rushes to my face and head uh, yes. and i like it you know maybe i'm being a baby but it feels a sort of unbearable. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm just thinking it's a, it's a, that, that would be a free way of doing it. Just put a couple of heavy books underneath yeah. the, um, your bedpost at the, where your feet is. And that could be a way of increasing the blood flow. So that's free. And free is good. I agree, yes. Uh, Okay, now this question I don't understand, so I'll ask it verbatim. What is the glymphatic system and its connection to neuro neurolog neurological illnesses? 
Yes, uh, that's a great question. So the glymphatic system, uh, the term is a way of pairing the way uh, a drainage system in our brain, it's a waste drainage system for our brain and nervous system. Uh, yes. It uses, it's very similar to the lymphatic system of the body, but yes. it uses our glial cells. Now yeah. to make that tangible, basically what that means is there's some cells in our brain uh, that basically drain the junk and get it out of our system. Yes. Uh, now the interesting part about the glymphatic system is it's 10 times more active in deep sleep. So it's barely functioning during the day. So yeah. while you're awake, there's nobody taking out the garbage. Yes. You have to get into that deep sleep for the garbage crew to show up. But stay uh, when the garbage happens. That's right. Yes, uh, exactly. So um, what they found is like Alzheimer's patients, for instance, who have an accumulation of varying plaques and proteins uh, and toxins in their brain. Uh, if you go back through their, their medical history, they averaged very poor sleeping patterns. Many of them only four to five hours of sleep a night. So uh, that, that, that cleaning process never got a chance to happen. Gosh. So what would you do in that case? Just enforce longer sleep? Encourage yeah. So the key there is try to find ways to get them to sleep uh, as naturally as possible. Uh, but whatever that takes to get them more hours of sleep is key. Okay. Okay. And I guess the healthy diet as well. Yes. Yeah. Whatever you can do that would typically encourage uh, lymphatic flow, proper blood flow for the rest of the body is yes. going to help the lymphatic system. But yes. again, it will only help if you're sleeping. Yes, I understand. Uh, Thomas Mihalak is asking, uh, can you heal uh, dysbiosis with plasticity? Dysbiosis. Yeah, so there's a couple elements there that are quite interesting. Okay, so one aspect is, um, you know, my, my first functional medicine, biological medicine background says, uh, no, you yes. can't. It, yes. You know, you got bacteria there. But yeah. the truth of that is, when they take studies and they look at heavy metal toxicity, they look at dysbiosis, they look at infections, and they take those lab values, you know, the, the lab markers for infections or heavy metals, and they do nothing but neuroplastic work, intense right. neuroplastic work, and they come back, those values are better. Heavy metals are better. Uh, dysbiosis infection markers are improved. Now, um, just to briefly dip into the five stages of neuroplastic healing, the yes. first stage is always cellular healing, yes. okay? So if there's an infection, we want to help the body clear it. If there's toxicity, we want to help the body clear it. And then we can get into the neurostimulation work. Yes. So, so technically, the way I use neuroplastic uh, healing and neuroplastic methodology, yes, but because I'm going to address the dysbiosis uh, as well as using neurostimulation and other aspects. Right. Wow. Um, so what is self-directed neuroplasticity? Yes. So self-directed neuroplasticity. Uh, that's a term that I borrowed from Dr. Schwartz, uh, and it's basically the idea of internally directing or internally influencing neuroplastic changes for yes. a specific or positive outcome. Uh, so in my patients, and the way I use self-directed neuroplasticity is uh, I typically want them to pick one issue at a time that they want to work on. Yes. Uh, maybe it's pain. Um, I've seen it very effective for um, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, fatigue, very specific symptom. Uh, and then there's five steps to self-directed neuroplasticity that I teach them. Uh, so step one is you have to be aware there's a problem, yes. right? You have to be aware you're having pain, yes. uh, et cetera. Because if you don't know, you can't work with it. Sure. Number two is that once you see that pattern, you interrupt it. You got to get it to stop. 
Uh, and so that, when you stop a pattern, we're using our left prefrontal cortex. Uh, and so there's a couple of ways we can do that. The second we notice that, oh, I'm in this pattern of pain again, uh, or for instance, you can use it with chemical sensitivity. Oop, I'm having a sensitivity perfume again. So we're aware, and then we, we're going to interrupt it. Stop, stop, cancel, cancel. Or we just maybe take a few, oh, a few big breaths. Yes. And we interrupt that pattern. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so then stage three is we want to re-identify it. We're going to say, okay, this is my neurological system having uh, a reaction, or it's my neurological system feeling pain. And the key there is that's true. Because without a neurological system, how do you know you're having a chemical reaction? You don't. If without a nervous system, how are you experiencing pain? Right. You wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So it's always your neurological system, right? right. And that's what's reporting. So this is my neurological system reporting me some feedback. Uh, and then we want to recontextualize it. We want to figure out what the root uh, is going on here. And so maybe it's, okay, I'm in this. Uh, so we figured out this is my nervous system. It's my, that same pattern of smell, chemical sensitivity I'm getting, or maybe it's whatever, but where my, you know, my neurological system is stuck in this pattern and I'm trying to rewire it. We're going to recontextualize it. So stop, stop, take a deep breath. <sighs> okay. This is my nervous system responding to this chemical sensitivity. Yes. We're going to rewire it. We're working to heal it. And then we're going to redirect it. That's the last step. So we're going to give it something new. So we have that old pattern that's firing, and then whoop, we stop it. Yes. And we told it what's happening. We told the brain what's going on, yes. right? And now we want it to send it on a new direction that's positive, that's healing. And so this could be tapping. It could be like the EFT tapping. Yes. Uh, it could be um, a visualization, a very positive visualization. Uh, I really like those quite a bit with all the sights, the sounds, the smells, right? We get a little we get essential oil in there, get a little peppermint. <laughs> You could simply just change what you're doing. You could start sweeping the house or something. Now that is useful, but I find if I do that, my mind still is gonna go, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, anyways. So I prefer to do something with it. I prefer to stop and tap. I prefer to have a visualization to redirect it. Right, so that's the, that's the five steps um, when you have something occur for self-directed neuroplasticity. Now there's variations, you know, Annie Hopper has hers, Dr. Schwartz has his, et cetera. Uh, that's the one I adapted that I felt like was easiest to explain to my patients. Can you apply any of those techniques or do you think they'll be appropriate for use with mild allergies? Do you think allergies may be caused by nervous response kicking in the immune response? I don't know. I, yeah, I, I do think there's uh, definitely an element uh, and, uh, you know, and, the, the way we've noticed is that you could kind of put neuro in front of any system of the body yes. and it works. Neuroimmune, neuroendocrine, neurodigestive. Uh, and hence with that, then you could start to work with um, symptoms like allergies, food allergies. Now, I wouldn't want to tap away an anaphylactic uh, reaction, right? Yes. Yes. If you're having peanuts and your throat's closing up, you don't we be. probably want to get you some Benadryl or some EpiPen first, mm. right? But eventually you can work it, especially more so things like food sensitivities or environmental sensitivities. It works really well with that. And yes. the interesting part is, um, especially when they're instant, the neurological system is recognizing that. The second it's coming in and you start having a, a symptom, the that's the neurological system going, oh my gosh, this is that thing I'm sensitive to? Let me have this mass cell reaction. <laughs> now, not all mast cell disorders, not all these 
or necessarily the, the limbic system or whatever, but it, it always plays a role. So how much better could we get or how many sensitivities could we eliminate or dampen down by working this tons a lot? Isn't, isn't the body amazing? Oh, I totally agree. It's so incredible. I've made a career out of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is optimism bias and how do we create one? Yes, so optimism bias. So to, to open up and talk about that, let me tell you a little story of some research that they did. Yes. So uh, with heart attacks, myocardial infarctions, uh, early on they, they thought, they theorized that people with type A personalities, really go-getters, kind of high-strung folks, that they were prone to heart attacks. And they thought if they could turn a type A person into a type B, a relaxed, laid-back individual, that they could help them not have heart attacks. Okay? And so they tried that experiment. And it failed miserably. Okay, right. you can't fully change your personality type. You can improve it and learn new skills, but you don't go from being the world's most uh, introverted person to suddenly being, you know, Tony Robbins. Yeah. Uh, you've got to work with your personality type. Uh, and so, what they did look at later, though, and uh, also they found why Type A people may have a few more heart attacks. Type B people have heart attacks too. Okay, yes. Yes. so that was one aspect they had to they had to debunk with that study. But they found if they took either type A or type B and turned them from pessimists to optimists, yes. and it doesn't mean you um, negate everything that's going wrong, but it yes. means, okay, I understand something wrong is happening, yes. but I also look for the positive, or I'm also looking to improve it. Yes. And that's what an optimism bias is. It says, what's, okay, I understand things might be going wrong here, but what <laughs> is going right? What's going well? Yes. And yes. that was uh, a fantastic work. For those cardiac patients, those heart disease patients, those patients did not have second heart attacks. And then they did it with cancer. It, it helped with cancer. Then they did it with uh, diabetes. It helped with diabetes. They applied it to all these, these standards. So when we start at the end of the day and we go, what went well today? You know, what are the three things I can find that went well? And then try to visualize them again, experience them again. And a couple of things happen. We all those same good neurotransmitters happen. We start to rewire those pessimistic pathways. Uh, we activate that left prefrontal cortex. Yes. Now, I didn't tell you what's great about that left prefrontal cortex. That left prefrontal cortex is in charge of executive functioning. So you want to say the word neuroplastic better? Get that guy going right there. Neuro, okay. Neuroplastic, yep, got it. Neuroplastic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> neuroplasticity so, is the problem, man. <laughs> uh, experiencing joy and optimism happens up here. Fine motor skills all happen up here. So when you experience that optimism bias, when yes. you stop and go, what went well, let me recall it as vividly as possible, yes. that gets in tune. And so your decision-making improves, your thinking improves, your planning improves, your ability to experience joy improves, your fine motor skills improve. Wow. So an optimism bias is a fantastic thing to cultivate. And it's not ignoring the negative. It just says, okay, here's the negative, but what's going well? You've only got positives. You know, if, you, if you're an optimistic sort of person, then um, you've got a lot going for you. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. Um, now, I, I, I asked a question for Kamala Walker before we go into the other topic. Um, uh, Kamala uh, asks, um, Martin, how would working with carbon buckyball molecules help with the brain cell healing? I am not as familiar with carbon buckyballs uh, as maybe I should be. So if she could give me a little more explanation on the carby buckyball aspect, I'd be happy to try to answer it. Okay, great. Now, um, are there things that we can do on a daily 
daily basis to improve our neuroplasticity, our, that's the, our normal routine in life. Um, I'm, I'm guessing um, that possibly being optimistic is one thing, but are there other, <laughs> you know, state yeah. of minds or or activities that you can do just on a you know, we can do on the bus on the way to work perhaps that you can help with your neuroplasticity. Yes. So we talked a little, you know, diet's good, of course, lifestyle That's factors, good. but uh, like you're talking about, how can we integrate little ways uh, into our life? So number one uh, is find ways to be curious. Oh. Uh, be curious about life. Uh, ask open-ended questions of yourself and of life. Um, you know, even, even silly things like on a subway, let's say, um, how many uh, different colors of t-shirts can I recognize today? And play a game with it. And it forces your brain and your eyes to make those adaptations. Uh, another aspect uh, that you can do, you, you know, you said it right there, the optimism bias, gratitude journal. Yes. Uh, that's a fantastic, easy way to make that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, another one uh, is coloring. You know what? Those grown-up coloring books are fantastic. Uh, <laughs> what they find, actually, which is uh, really, really great for me, um, for my patients who say, I can't meditate. You know, I try to meditate. It drives me nuts. What they found is that if you mix a little bit of breathing exercises with grown-up coloring books, you get all the same compounds uh, or all the same um, benefits of meditation as you do with um, coloring. <laughs> so when you go to a toy, toy store, you've got a big pile of comics. Oh, these are for you? Um, are these for your children? Yeah, they're for my kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, of course they're for them. Of course. So it, nice. it works fantastic. And I have lots of patients who love it. They turn wow. it into a family activity at the end of the day. Everybody oh. colors, mom, dad, the kids. Uh, and it, it, you know, everybody's getting their brain stimulation that way. Oh. Um, so that's one way. Um, Cross-crawling is fantastic. And cross-crawl uh, is that pattern that babies do. And it's the same pattern we get when we run. Yes. So the benefit of being in a little bit of an office, yes. you know, that same kind of crossing pattern there yes. that occurs. Yes. And so when you have that pattern, uh, it connects the corpus callosum, which is this nice little bridge between the right and left halves of the brain. Yes. It connects all the neurons on the right and left side of the, the, the body, the limbs, yes. back to the brain. And it really, I, I tell my kids, it turns their brain on. So, you know, just sitting there, even on the subway, lifting those knees and tapping them is a fantastic way to keep the brain functioning well. Gosh, that is simple. Um, yes. Carbon carbon has come back. It's uh, the common working name for the uh, carbon compounds is C60. It's known as okay. So um, you know, I'm still not as familiar with it, and I, okay. I probably will miss the question here. Okay. There's various aspects uh, in my practice that I work with. Uh, it's not carbon buckyballs. There's uh, varying aspects of activated carbon that we work with as binding agents and mineral donating agents uh, that I often work with. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm still missing that. So I'd have to look it up, and maybe um, we could drop that in the Facebook post uh, okay. afterwards. But oh, thank you, thank you. Now yeah. we're going to the second part of our summer, having just something like ten minutes to go. <laughs> but the, yeah. first, the first stage was so interesting; we could go on longer. I know. And uh, then neurology of emotions. Now we actually we've we've gone from one; we've actually rolled into this one anyway, naturally. And yes. you know, a positive frame of mind is uh, necessary, really, to remain. Um, you know, plastic and your ability to um, to um, re to heal. But um, and you've already covered on um, emotions. But you've uh, do thoughts also affect health? Um, thinking things. Um, are there certain things that 
um, you tell your patients to consider when they're when they've um, got some form of injury or want to have some change in their um, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the opportunity there to to kind of dive into two avenues. And uh, yes. so number one, I'll quickly the five stages of neuroplastic healing. Number yes. one, I said was cellular. That was getting rid of the junk, fixing deficiencies. Yes. Number two, neurostimulation, which I'll come back to with the thoughts. Three yes. is neuromodulation, where we balance the fight or flight and rest and digest. Yes. And if you do that, you get into neural relaxation, which is where the system starts to heal. It can relax and finally heal. And lastly, you get into neurodifferentiation and learning. So one of the ways we can get into stage two of neurostimulation are thoughts, thoughts, visualizations. So when we, when we have a thought, we trigger a certain neural pathway, yes. you know, depending on what the thought is. Yes. We can trigger parts of the limbic system, the prefrontal cortex, et cetera. Um, and so also, depending on those thoughts, we trigger varying neurotransmitters. Maybe we trigger dopamine or serotonin or oxytocin. Uh, to have those different effects on the brains. Uh, and so to kind of dive into the second part, uh, I do two things. You know, I, I, I want my patients to, to think positive thoughts, of course. I often have them visualize um, what healing might look like for them. Um, I also, and then often if they have a negative thought or they have a similar negative uh, emotional thought pattern, I want to root that out. I want to figure out what that is, and then I want to redirect it. I want to turn it into a positive. So I'll, I want to examine it, I want to dismantle it, and I want to help them turn it into a positive and have those brain effects. Right. Um, just got a comment from one uh, from Bev Wright. I won't, I won't read it out, but um, if someone has a general injury, it's a physical injury, and it's nothing to do with their, their brain or nerves, do you think mm -hmm. that um, any of what we've discussed today will help in their body's ability to recover? after operation in this case yes uh it would help fantastic so um the only number one again the only way we know we have an injury yes. like the only way we can experience that injury is with that brain yes right we yes. would never know we had one now that same injury is constantly sending feedback to the brain and the brain is sending feedback back to that injury so okay. if we want to keep those muscles strong and we want to keep the blood flow positive one of the things we can do is we can visualize let's say it's a knee injury we can visualize that knee moving. We can visualize that knee doing squats. Uh, and the brain can't tell a difference between a visualization and actually doing it. Wow. So it continues to strengthen those neural circuits to that knee. So if you have to be out of commission for six weeks, you can't, let's say, walk or use that knee for six weeks, well, it's going to get deconditioned. But research has shown by visualizing and thinking about that knee doing work, then it has less deconditioning. It recovers faster. It improves blood flow to that area. Now, another interesting aspect is what we call the body map. Now, you don't feel your hand, okay, directly. Yes. The only thing you feel are neural circuits, are neural transmission coming from that hand, going to the brain. The brain has to interpret it according to its body map, its image of the body, and then your consciousness sees that body map. And so you think, ooh, I cut my finger. Mm -hmm. But you don't feel the cut. You feel the brain's interpretation of your body map. Understand. Okay, so what, when we have an injury, it changes that body map, okay, and it's starting to inform it. So uh, if we're having an input from that knee, from that knee injury, we yes. can create a slightly different output so that our body map stays healthy. So if we have a knee injury, and this is where you get guys who said, oh, I hurt my knee in football 40 years ago, and it still gives me problems. But if you scope that knee, it might not be an issue. 
If yes. you go in there and say, there's no real problem, but their body map still remembers the injury. And so we want to change that body map. Now, here's the really cool part with that is let's say they did have arthritis. Yes. Let's say that knee injury called severe arthritis. Yes. Regardless, if we change that body map, that knee pain might go away. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to go a little bit deeper. I was going to bring up the arthritis. I was also going to talk about some other disease like, um, like cancers. Um, yes. Can, because I've, I've talked to some people that um, have got abilities and they, and they, they visualize things and visualize things to happen and it becomes a reality. And, and yes. you put yourself in, they instruct the people to put yourself in a certain place where you are disease free. And it's just the power. I don't know how to, how to phrase it really, but they, um, uh, workshops where they say, you know, imagine the energies flowing from the universe down through your body and out through your toes. Well, there might be some science behind that for, you know, tying it with what they're saying, with what you're saying now and um, visualizing things and making something physical rather than just a thought, because it is something physical, isn't it? Everything that you oh, know yes. of your body is interpreted by your brain. You know, it's, it's, it's just immensely incredible. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And the body, you know, the body doesn't speak uh, in words. You know, it doesn't say, we don't tell it, move your arm 45 degrees to the left and six degrees up, and that way we can grab our cup. You know, it, it speaks, in, it has its visualizations. And when, if you want the cup, you see the cup and you go for it. You see your arm doing the action. It just happens. And it's the same way with what you're saying. So to create certain neural circuits and body changes, we can give it visualizations. We can give it pictures and stories. And the body gets that. Yes. You know, yes. You, it's a neurological, it gets stories and pictures. And so we can visualize those things. And the, and the body says, oh, what you want me to do with this cancer cell is you <laughs> want my little soldiers to attack it. Right? Yeah. If you go, yeah. immune system, get after it. The immune system's like, I don't speak that language. But it does yeah. speak visualization. Right. And you can use that visualization to overcome quite serious injuries, like this person's had uh, six broken bones. So it's quite a, um, quite a bad injury. You can use that to overcome the pain and, and possibly... Uh, yes. So, uh, so pain, definitely. Yes. Okay. Uh, and again, you cannot experience pain without a brain. Okay. Yes. Uh, you have, you, so you can influence all pain through your brain. Okay. I know that, that chronic pain sufferers might give me some pushback, but fantastic results with pain on that. Yes. Um, uh, and number two, you can speed the healing. Okay. Yes. You can speed the healing of those broken bones using those visualizations. So you can visualize those bones knitting back together perfectly. Okay. Yes. Aligning perfectly. You can visualize that. See them healing perfectly in alignment. Uh, you can, whatever you're into, let's say you're a, a crochet. You, you do crochet. Yes. Well, you can visualize the bones crocheting themselves back together. And the body goes, I get that. I get what you want me to do. You're adapting resources to it. If you're putting attention on it, then the body's going to put uh, resources towards it. Now, Joe Dispenza, Dr. Joe Dispenza, he works a lot with neuroplasticity. And his story is quite fantastic. He shouldn't have even been able to walk again. He had a uh, cycling accident, and he shattered some vertebra in his spine. Shouldn't have been able to walk. He used visualization and neuroplastic techniques to heal that. He's walking, running. He's great. Good gracious. Um, a couple of comments have come through. Uh, Thomas Mahalik has said, make wish boards. It's something I'd have to look up when I've um, finished this interview. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what they are. And uh, Sebastian Bauer says, lions made mushroom. 
may be of interest. It has sufficient evidence of supporting nerve growth. So it's another thing I'll probably look up as well. Yeah, it's uh, lion's mane is a fantastic um, herb and mushroom um, mixture that you can uh, adapt um, and with other ingredients. Sometimes you can mix it in to create a nerve healing effect. Uh, so nerve regrowth, remyelization, lion's mane is fantastic. Great. Okay, now um, Thomas has said vision boards is another word for it. So oh, vision boards. Yes, uh, vision boards are great. Um, vision boards put out, and this, uh, you can do it for healing. You can do this for successful uh, principles in your life, uh, personal growth, etc. cetera. Um, yes. What are you wanting? And visualize it out. Draw it in great detail. See it. Yes. And, and one of the aspects, too, that they found uh, that's really important for visualization, okay, uh, and this is research-driven, is that you don't only visualize uh, the positive uh, thing that you want, whether that's healing or uh, it's a success goal, but you need to visualize the steps to get there. Okay. Okay. So if, um, if let's say you have a physical injury and you're visualizing, you have a physical injury, let's say to your hip. Okay. And it's impairing your ability to walk. Mm -hmm. And so you're visualizing yourself walking perfectly healthy, no problems. You can walk, but you also want to visualize yourself uh, doing um, rehab. Okay taking the steps of rehab. You want to visualize yourself enjoying rehab, getting results with rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, you want, and if you um, have a negative thought or a negative setback, that's fine. Visualize what you're going to do to overcome that negative setback. Uh, they, they find studies that say, okay, if I visualize what I want, the steps to get there, mm -hmm. and then if an, what I'm going to do if an obstacle occurs. So you visualize three things. You visualize the goal. You visualize the steps to get there and you visualize your plan to overcome obstacles. That's pretty good stuff. And uh, Thomas is suggesting cut pictures um, out from magazines and powerful words, pictures that would mean something to you or you associate with where you want to be, I guess. And powerful words like succeed. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a, one of the key things with what he's saying, thank you, uh, Thomas, is that um, you want them to have an emotional trigger. You want to get those the good feels, right? Uh, it's a little bit of an endorphin rush, technically, in a neurotransmitter dump. But um, you want those pictures and those words to give you those, the tingly good feels. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Now, um, what are the three Ps of causation? Yes, okay. So uh, three Ps of causation. That's a model I use to help explain kind of why and what happened to patients. Okay. So the first P is things that predispose you. So okay. uh, predisposing factors. To an illness or a stressor or an accident so that might be like a poor diet okay it might not cause a problem but it predisposes you to an issue and then you have the precipitating event so we think of precipitation we think of like a raindrop right a raindrop happens and what that means is the forming event so that might be a trauma a stressor uh, it might be getting an infection like getting bit by a tick and getting the Borrelia infection yes. so that precipitates that's what was the triggering event mm -hmm. And then you lastly have the perpetuating. That's the third P. It's things that keep the illness or keep the issue or the stressor going. So yes. that might be now that you have, uh, you had the poor diet and then you had the triggering event. Maybe now you've got leaky gut and maybe you had leaky gut the whole time, but now that leaky gut's keeping you from getting better. Right. Right. Okay. Well, the, um, the last thing I want to touch on is um, attitudes and emotions. Now, how can we, um, take care of our emotional health? Are there steps that we can do? Again, everyday steps. 
which um, I enjoy talking to you because all your solutions are actually free. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I can yeah. have, so things that people can afford. Um, so along the same vein, are there free things that people can do to sort of um, to make themselves um, higher emotionally and not so down in the, in the pits? Yeah, so, okay, one of the first aspects I find is that we really uh, want to address our emotions. Most of our emotional issues come from resisting looking at our emotions, okay? Uh, and if you ask somebody what's wrong, well, they may just say, I'm not sure, I just feel terrible, yes. right? I just, I'm, I'm just so depressed, I'm so angry, but they don't really understand. So one of the things I found very early on to help with patients uh, and truly to help with myself, um, you know, I, I had uh, very high anxiety constantly. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't really sleep until I was in my early 20s. I basically oh. wandered my house. Yeah. Uh, and my mind would just go and go and go and go and thoughts and stories and dilemmas and uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies. So one of the things I found to do was to, before bed, I would write down everything I'm feeling, everything I'm thinking about. And all of a sudden, I was aware of it. And the fact that I brought it up to awareness, my brain could kind of go, oh, thank you for taking the pressure off me. I was trying to hold on to all this stuff until you looked at it. And now that you looked at it, I can relax. Yes. I slept so good the first night I did that. Okay. So we need to get aware of all the feelings and emotions and thoughts that are bubbling up. And the easiest way is to what I call brain dump that. Just yes. don't, journaling's great. I like journaling, but you don't have to journal. You can just list it all. One word, stress about work. You know, what am I going to wear tomorrow? Just a yes. couple of words, just list yes. it out. One, two, three, four. Very easy. Uh, so that gets us aware of those emotions. Yes. Uh, and then once you get used to that, another aspect is what I call somatosensory awareness. It's very similar to mindfulness body scanning. Uh, and this is a practice that reinforms the brain's body map, and it gets you used to spots of held tension, emotional tension in the body. Uh, and all you do is you lay down, you relax, and you just start with your toes and try to feel everything you're feeling in your toes and just breathe while you feel it. If it feels stuck, it feels tight, it feels tense, just uh, pretend you're breathing through in and out of that tension until it eases up, until you can move on. And if, you, if your brain starts going into stories and thoughts and blah, 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 say, whoops, got stuck there, and just start where you left off and just work through the whole body, toes to head that way. And you get used to where, oh, I hold anxiety right in here. I hold depression down here, wherever for you. But you get used to those spots, okay? And this is kind of a, a curriculum, if you will, I take my patients through. So as you start doing that, then I might say, okay, we need to look at your life and we need to see all these little points uh, that are key decision points and why did you make those decisions? Yes. And I call those our value and belief points, okay? Uh, and so when we figure out these value and belief points, and I try to get my patients to get it down to three to five. And the reason being these value and belief points become our protection points, or these worldviews become our protection points, okay? So we might form a point that says, um, I'm not safe or I'm not okay unless uh, I have uh, financial security or whatever security looks like for you, unless I have security. I'm not safe unless I know that I'm never going to go broke, okay? Or I'm not safe unless I feel completely comfortable all the time. No discomfort whatsoever. So that might be no pain. It means you might not ever push yourself in a, a work situation, whatever, but no discomfort, okay? So these are our value points. So you look back in your history. Why did I decide to go to college? here and not three hours away. 
Well, I don't want to be too uncomfortable. Mom and dad are still here, and it might be uncomfortable if I take care of myself, right? Oops, that's a value. That's a belief point. Yes. It's okay. So once we have those, during the day when you notice, okay, I did the body scanning, and I'm coming up with emotions right here. It's all this tension right here. And you stop and go, what's the story right here? What's the story? I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm, I put myself in this uncomfortable situation. I, I need to go to this event, and I told so-and-so I need this event, and I'm, I'm stuck uncomfortable. I'm stuck in that value point for me. You say, okay, can I allow myself to feel that uncomfortableness for a moment? Can I allow myself to feel that vulnerableness that I feel because I don't feel safe? And just breathe through it because there's no lion, right? There's no lion who's eating you. It's just uncomfortableness. So breathe for a second, sit in it. Once you do that, once you recognize it's that uncomfortableness, you can then pick, like I talked about earlier, pick an exercise, happen. Even though I feel uncomfortable, I allow myself to be okay. And you have to pick a second statement that you believe. So I really like the EFT statements. I deeply and completely accept myself. But I, I wonder how many of us really believe that. Right? So uh, I want my patients to pick a statement that they believe in. I want to be well. I'm allowing myself to be well. Whatever it is. Even though I feel uh, scared about financial insecurity. I allow myself to be well, or whatever the emotion is, and you tap through it until it starts to clear. So to recap, we can brain dump, we can do the body scanning, we can figure out our worldviews, our beliefs, and then we can use something like tapping to uh, allow ourselves to be okay with those aspects. Right, right. Um, it's, 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 it's absolutely intriguing. You know, you've, um, it's just, um, Surprised when, when before the interview, you know, you're, you're a certified corrective exercise specialist and you're certified in functional in, um, endocrinology. But you've yes. been advancing as a counselor. <laughs> you, you know, because you, you've, you've, you're a very um, down to earth type of person. You've got, Thank you. you've got all the theories, but to, um, to apply them and then apply them in the way that it will be accepted by. by the normal Joe or, jo or uh, Josephine blogs, and, you know, because all the all the ideas you've given can be done by anybody. It's, you know, standing on a bus, you're know, crossing. Yes, road. it's all free techniques and they're common sense, and they and it makes sense. Um, yeah, I uh, one aspect is uh, I really I really enjoy theory, but yes. it's all fly in the sky until you apply it, right? Yes, uh, and then just out of my heart is I. I want to help everybody. So what can I, what can I do? What can I uh, give, give you or give the world that they could do on a bus stop? Because yes. I can't, I, I feel, I feel for that person suffering. There's so much more to life than suffering. Uh, yes. And so what can, what can I do to help alleviate that so you can live, right? You can start to live the richness of life. Yeah, that's, it's, it's amazing. I've, I've really enjoyed this talk together. Well, that's, it's, um, it's time over folks. Um, it's, it's absolutely brilliant the time spent with you. It's, it's been solid gold. It really has been. Thank uh, you so much. I, I kind of expected um, us to be blinded by science, but you've been gentle with us. <laughs> I try to keep it easy. And, uh, and understandable and applicable. And um, you've answered things um, in a very sensitive type of way. I really, I really have enjoyed your time with us today. So, Thank you so much. I appreciate the chance to share it with you and your audience. Well, I really appreciate also your attitude of wanting to give people the knowledge, the, the tools that they need to to get better and overcome conditions or illnesses and improve their lives.
Gosh, it's, yeah. it's been amazing. You don't have any books, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. No. Not yet. I can imagine that because you'd, you'd write a brilliant book. You'd, you'd write in a in you know in a way that people can understand it and people can apply, and they don't have to go and buy anything expensive. Just just change patterns, change the way they think, become aware of things, aware of the tingling in their toes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's their it's their innate right to have the ability to heal themselves. It is innate. It's, it's an ability that people lose. Um, very, very early on. As soon as you go to formal education, I think that's when, when, it all, when it's all over, over. <laughs> yes. You know, I, uh, I really appreciate Socrates and his idea that education is about pulling things out. And uh, these are just, I'm just, uh, and all the other, the giants, like I said, that I, I'm standing on the shoulders of, we're just articulating things that are, that are intrinsic to us in here and in here. Yes. Uh, I'm just making them, I'm just showing them back to you, but they're already in there. So. Yeah. And what you're really saying is that it's never too late. You can, yes. you, you can rekindle. No, exactly. No, that no that flame is always in there. <laughs> okay. Well, once again, thank you so much, Dr. Martin Hart. It's been fantastic having you with us. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care.